Breaking news. Breaking news. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You got to equip. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're going to get. Welcome to The Docket, episode 44. My name is Michael Spratt. I'm Emily Tammon. How are you, Emily Tammon? I'm good. I'm a little um, sweaty. It's very hot. It is hot, although not in here because we have air conditioning on. And today was like the least hot day of all the hot days. I know, but I'm still, I feel like I have like heat PTSD. Oh, sweat hangover. (laughs) Yeah, sweat hangover. I mean, I don't want to be one of those people who complains of the heat when I live in a city that's very, very cold uh, a lot of the time. So I wouldn't say that I'm complaining, I'm just stating the fact that it is very hot, and as a consequence, I have been quite sweaty for several days. Wouldn't want to be a farmer. No. I know. I know. It's tough. So it did rain today, a little bit, but I feel like, relative to what's required, it's a drop in the bucket, a drop in the field. Do you you know why um, people tune into this podcast? What's that? To hear us talk about the weather. Yeah. Agriculture... Uh, but we had good weather because we went on a um, partial family canoe trip. We did. We went on a five-day canoe trip with our two boys and our next-door neighbor, uh, our, our next-door neighbors and their daughter. Uh, and we did that after dropping our own daughter uh, at summer camp for a month. You couldn't probably ask for better weather for summer camp than we've had this year. I think actually today is probably the first rain they've had uh, since the end of July. So that's great for them. Not so good for the farmers. No, canoe trip was awesome. It was no like a gorby day tripper canoe trip. We like carried the canoe and did portages and saw more moose than people and stuff like that. We had a four-year-old, a six-year-old, and a seven-year-old, and we portaged probably almost 10 kilometers in total over those days. So not a bad accomplishment for a couple of of kids. Yeah, it was fantastic. And um, I feel like we did something else. Oh yeah, I went to Las Vegas. You went to Las Vegas with your colleagues. Yep. Um, so my partners and I went to Vegas for educational purposes. <laughs> Actually, it was mostly educational for me. I went to the Atomic Test Museum. The Mob Museum. The Mob Museum. A AAA baseball game. Las Vegas 51s. It's good stuff. They say when you're in Vegas, the one thing you should do is go to the Atomic Test Museum. Is that right? No. Who's they? No one. <laughs> no, no one says that. that ever. But the Mob Museum is actually really interesting because if you're looking for arguments about why we should legalize all drugs, if you're looking for arguments um, why prohibition leads to uh, crime, that's basically what the Mob Museum is. Cool. Prohibit alcohol and lots of people die and bad guys get really rich. I don't think I'll be taking a trip to Vegas for that purpose alone. I've never been myself, but uh, while you were in Vegas, I was lounging at the cottage with two friends for four days, which was a much-needed recharge, reboot. So, yeah, it's good. We're having a good summer. Yeah, it's good. And we haven't had kids for two weeks. This is the last day for me, because i got to go pick up the boys. Demain. The boys are coming home tomorrow. Our daughter's coming home in about a week. And then we're back to school, and I'm starting my new job. How's that going? How's your, how's your prep for that going? It's going well. Yeah? I'm excited. I'm, Good. Uh, I'm like, it's not so much about relearning, but it's about absorbing the substantive material in a totally different way. 
and I've gotten some good guidance from a number of colleagues. In particular, what I found helpful is a, is a few people telling me what students find hard because it's been a long time since I've been in first year law school or around first year law students. And one of the things I'm the most kind of up in the air about is uh, what do they know, what's the level to kind of teach at. So that's actually been really helpful and I'm just really looking forward to it. Yeah, so it's been a while since we podcast. Um, last time we talked about like speedy trials and delay and Pokemon. And I guess the other main event is you finally downloaded Pokemon Go and you're almost a Pokemaster. I'm almost ashamed that you disclosed that because I believe in the last podcast I boasted about how proud I was that I had managed to remain pretty much oblivious to Pokemon Go. I'm not like that thrilled about it. Like it, it's, it's fine. I don't, I don't see it being something that I'm going to um, have the same level of commitment to as some other people. Yeah, there's, I think, like, the media likes it. There's been lots of stories about people getting tickets in parks for playing Pokemon and being there after midnight and smoking in parks. There's a story every day about some Pokemon fiasco. Yeah. Getting a bit old. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of other stuff happened since we podcast last. A lot of stuff has happened. I feel like we've had several occurrences of saying, ah, we need to do a podcast on this. We need to do a podcast on that. And so um, what we've decided to do for this episode is to take four topics uh, we're going to talk about each of them for 10 minutes apiece because we don't want to go on in perpetuity. There's a timer. We're going to have a strict enforcement of our 10 minute limit because we know, and, and in particular, anyone who's ever heard us interview someone, we're uh, notorious for asking, uh, for committing to a 20 minute interview and then talking to someone for an hour. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to strictly time ourselves. Uh, should I set out what our topics are going to be? Yeah. So why don't you go through the topics and then we can, um, and then we can foray into our breaking news and then breaking uh, news, breaking news. So uh, the four topics we're going to discuss today are the following. The first is the Liberal government's newly announced appointment process for the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, second, we're going to talk about some terrorism-related issues. Um, that topic is sort of precipitated by the stay of proceedings in the case of uh, Cordry and Nuttall in British Columbia in relation to um, subsequent to their conviction and the finding by the judge that they had been entrapped by the RCMP. Uh, we'll talk uh, briefly about the recent um, events in relation to Aaron Driver in Southern Ontario, who was uh, killed by RCMP uh, in the face of a terrorism threat, and just sort of touch on Bill C-51 and where we are in light of those cases. We can totally do that in 10 minutes. It's, it's, not, it's not at all a big topic. Uh, we are going to talk about the sentencing of the Toronto police officer, Frasillo, who was convicted of attempted murder in the shooting death of Sami Atim. And finally, we're going to talk about the, uh, the death of Abdirahman Abdi by police in Ottawa. Uh, we, before getting into our topics, though... Breaking news. Breaking news. So right before uh, we started recording, like literally five minutes before we pressed play, a federal judge ordered a new trial in the Brendan Dassey case. This is a huge development for our Making a Murderer listeners. Uh, kind of came out of nowhere for me. I didn't realize that a decision would be uh, so imminent. So we just thought we would quickly acknowledge um, the fact that uh, Brendan Dassey's conviction has been overturned. Um, you had a chance to take a quick skim of the decision. I haven't really looked at it yet. 
Yeah, so it's it's uh, over 90 pages. So this is like the hottest of hot takes because I read 90 pages in the last like two minutes. But essentially there was two grounds of appeal. The first ground was a conflict of interest between Brendan Dassey's terrible, terrible, terrible lawyer, Len Kaczynski, um, for basically doing the state's work for them. Um, they talk, the, the judgment talks about him going to the media, talks about, um, you know, you know, the defense's interrogation of Brendan Dassey and how uh, he fought to stay on the record and, and what an awful lawyer he is. Um, the court ultimately doesn't uh, grant the appeal on that basis. They don't have kind words to say uh, about Kaczynski. Um, they call his misconduct indefensible, both tactically and ethically. So it's not that he's just an ethically bad lawyer, but he's an ethically bad lawyer he, who makes bad tactical decisions. Um, it's a pretty stinging indictment of uh, the professional confidence of counsel. If you don't have integrity or tactics, you really got nothing. <laughs> You're sort of like a Len Kaczynski. <laughs> Um, so, but but they found that that um, sort of that conflict. Well, I think what we would call here maybe ineffective assistance of counsel didn't necessarily square with with their prior law. Um, but the second argument was that Brendan Dassey's confession, which was obviously a key piece of evidence against him, um, was not voluntary. It, it was based on promises and inducements, and given his intellectual disadvantages, his young age, the power imbalance. Um, they found that uh, his statement was involuntary. Now, they did say some, they didn't go very hard on the police officers, as a lot of Court of, court of Appeals sort of don't. Um, they, you know, didn't find any um, malice or ill intent on the part of the officers. Yeah, so, I mean, they threw the officers uh, a little bit of a bone there. Um, but they, you know, sort of chalked it up to sort of, you know, multiple statements, things unfolding fastly, suggestions, tunnel vision, that sort of stuff. So they didn't find any um, good, they didn't find good faith, but they didn't find bad faith on the part of the police officers. But ultimately, um, the, uh, the petition for writ of habeas corpus is granted um, and Dassey could be free in 90 days. The prosecution has 90 days to either initiate or reinitiate proceedings against him, or if they appeal uh, this decision, um, the court said there'll be a stay of the decision. So if they don't do anything in 90 days, he's out. I can't imagine that they're not going to do anything. So that's interesting, and that's part of what we want to just take a little bit of time to explore a little more um, thoughtfully in terms of our own understanding of procedure in the U.S., because in Canada... Um, in circumstances like this, a court would simply order a new trial. It seems that the procedure here is to overturn the conviction, and then the ball appears to have been tossed back to the prosecution to either file new charges or not. And I would imagine that it will be open to him to apply for bail in the interim, given that it's only 90 days. I don't know if they'll do that. But anyway, these are all the things that we're going to look into a little bit more, and um, we will dedicate a future podcast uh, to this development. I hope they're recording his phone calls, and I hope we get to hear the phone call to his mom. Yep. Mom. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they overturned my conviction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I'll get to go to WrestleMania now. Oh. Poor it's Brendan ten Dassey. years. I mean, I don't mean to make fun. It's ten, not funny at all. Ten it's... years in jail, a life destroyed. Hopefully, uh, some little bit of justice uh, can be done, and I guess it's all fodder for a second uh, season of Making a Murder. 
well, I, if you're the if you're the filmmakers, this is a development that uh, I wonder whether they were there in court for because I suspect they might have been. So let's talk. Uh, let's move on from Brendan Dassey, and we're going to put our timer on, and we're going to talk about the newly announced uh, changes to the process by which judges of the Supreme Court of Canada are appointed. Go. <laughs> Go just like that. So on August 2nd, the government uh, announced its new process for judicial appointments to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I would say overall, the reception by the media and the public has been relatively positive. Uh, A couple, I mean, maybe I'll just start by setting out essentially what the process is. How about I set out what the process was and you can uh, say what the process is. So in Canada, the prime minister um, has discretion on who he wants to appoint to the Supreme Court. Typically, this was, up until 10 years ago, a completely opaque process. Um, No one knew what names the prime minister had, what qualifications uh, he was looking for. The only sort of real rules was a convention that we've had since the Supreme Court uh, beginning of its existence, where based on different regions, there needs to be judges from different regions. So if a judge from Atlantic Canada retires, then you know the next judge will be appointed from Atlantic Canada. That was up to the prime minister's discretion. The, um, the liberals changed that a little bit 10 years ago. Uh, Justice Minister Erwin Kotler um, uh, testified before a committee. The conservatives said that they would make that process even more transparent. I think it became less transparent. Um, leading to actually a judge being rejected by the Supreme Court, Justice Nadon. Um, but there's been calls for more transparency, more openness, and um, sort of more representation or a, a better representation of Canada on the Supreme Court. And um, this is what the Liberals came up with. Yeah, and to be fair, this is a really, really difficult thing to do, I think, to at the same time ensure the judicial independence of the the new appointment to the Supreme Court, while at the same time satisfying the public that the person um, has the chops to do the job. And so when it comes to transparency and accountability, um, I've always had this kind of slight discomfort with the idea of public hearings where the um, proposed appointee is actually questioned with respect to his or her views on certain legal issues, because I think most people who would be um, finding themselves in the position of, of being nominated to the Supreme Court would be very uncomfortable um, to be perceived as prejudging an issue. So, I mean, I think it's very different than the process in the United States. I can't fathom a scenario where a person would answer a question like, what are your views on the criminalization of abortion, say, for example? That's kind of a bad one because it's settled in law. But I mean, I think most judges would respond, I make my decisions based on the facts before me. And so all that is to say that I think at the end of the day, all people can really know about the judge is their their CV uh, and their professional accomplishments to the extent that those are available to the public. Yeah, and I mean, there hasn't been sort of any any real criticism of the judges who have been appointed in the past. Um, I mean, conservative or liberal appointment going back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years to, to the beginning of the Supreme Court, I don't think there has been much controversy, and we've seen conservatives appoint judges who actually sort of err on the side of, of rights and freedoms, and we've seen liberals appoint judges who have been more restrictive in their view of, of you know, privacy limitations and things like that. So it's, it's weird that there has been this opaque process that has actually seemed to produce actually pretty good results, but why don't you outline what, uh, what the liberal or what the new appointment process is going to be? In right. six minutes we have. Yes. 
So basically, the government is inviting uh, people who meet the criteria under the Supreme Court Act to apply to be judges of the Supreme Court. That is, um, sitting judges and lawyers with a with a certain amount of experience. Um, in terms of history and convention, it's it's generally been the case for some time that there is one appointment to the Supreme Court by a practitioner straight from private practice who hasn't been sitting as a judge, and that would normally be a very highly esteemed person. So that will continue. It will be open to practitioners to apply. The change here is that you can actually now apply, whereas before there wasn't a formal application process. Right. So that's a pretty big change. And we've taken a look at the application materials, and it's... To me, it just it's funny to think of a person sort of writing an essay why I want to be a Supreme Court judge, but that's the direction that they're going. And one of the justifications been, that's been given for that is that um, in the interest of um, advancing diversity on the court, um, at the justice minister has indicated that she would like as many people as possible to be applying. Um, so you know that's that's that. Um, the government has indicated that they will be appointing a functionally bilingual person to the position. So this is not a requirement under the Supreme Court Act uh, or the Judges Act. This is basically an indication that the Prime Minister is going to exercise his discretion with that as one of the requirements that's going to guide his decision. And this is, for many of us, a very welcome um, uh, change because, uh, and it's, it's controversial. It's something that a lot of people are talking about. Yeah, because people say, you know, there's translation on the court and, and, um, and simultaneous translation so that, you know, you don't want to disqualify um, the best candidate just because they don't speak one of the official languages. And that's particularly an issue in some regions of Canada where French is spoken much less than it is, for example, here in Ottawa. But there's translation in the court, but there isn't necessarily translation of materials. So you could have a judge who is English uh, speaking, doesn't speak any French, receives all the materials in French, and then has to rely on a clerk to digest the material for him or her. And, you know, you can see the value of being able to read and write in both official languages. But I think maybe just to finish off the process really quickly um, is uh, the the candidates are going to be vetted by a nonpartisan committee head, headed by former Prime Minister Kim Campbell, who are then going to take a look at the criteria, the functional bilingualism and some other criteria and give a, a short list to the Prime Minister. And then the Prime Minister will then choose off that short list. That's right. And if I understand it correctly, there will be appearances before um, Judicial Affairs Committee. The Justice Minister um, will appear um, before the Judicial Affairs Committee to discuss the process. Um, I don't know what else she can necessarily discuss. She's not the one making the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is sort of how we're going to have transparency. So and I accountability. Guess... I mean, that, or that's the claim, or that's the goal. Um, so just quickly to... So, so I think the two biggest points of controversy in this new process are the functional bilingualism requirement and the departure from the longstanding constitutional convention of regional representation on the court. I think people in Atlantic Canada are very unhappy. Um, I understand from what I've heard in the media, I haven't had a chance to, to corroborate this, but that um, there's only been one six-month period in the entire history of the Supreme Court where Atlantic Canada has not been represented on the bench. I would imagine that may be because of a lengthy period of vacancy, but this is a concern. I think the Supreme Court of Canada has a very important um, policy development function and um, a part of our kind of um, understanding of our democracy in in a federalist uh, state is that there will be representation not only in the Senate and the House of Commons, but also on the Supreme Court of Canada. So that's a concern. For me, it's a concern not only for the reason I just articulated, but also because... 
to me, it's almost a little bit of a throwback to the Harper era where I'm not very comfortable with the kind of flippant abandonment of constitutional convention or long-standing entrenched practice without a very thoughtful explanation as to why. I think the justice minister has been flippant about this change. I don't think we've had a good explanation. In fact, it was really only uncovered by people looking very closely at the announcement of the new process, which said candidates from across Canada will be invited to apply. And I think that was very surprising to people because our understanding was that this vacancy would be filled by someone from Atlantic Canada. Yeah, it um, it may not be a big deal for this government if there's no um, Eastern representation on the court. I can guarantee you it'd be a massive deal to the Western Canada if there was no Western uh, judge on the court. And, and this should be a big deal in Eastern Canada. And the strange thing is this government has holds every single seat in Eastern Canada. Which is probably why there hasn't been a huge, um, loud, uproarious public outcry about this among elected officials. There's been a very soft kind of, we're concerned, we want to know more, but I think it's an issue. Um, on the bilingualism side, like I said previously, I think it's a really good development. And what you said before, I think is particularly important because I think a lot of people don't appreciate the fact that the judges are not provided with the written materials in, they're only provided with them in the language in which they're written. And I think what most lawyers understand is, you know, I think the conventional wisdom is that your case is more or less won or lost on your written submissions. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, generally at the Supreme Court level, it's said, you know, 90%, 80% is your written and your oral is really just an opportunity yeah. to answer questions. So uh, to me, I mean, not being able to understand. The development today was Tom Mulcair and the Justice Committee uh, finding out from the Justice Minister directly that her definition of functional bilingualism does not include an ability to speak French. That it, to me is very troubling. I speak French. I can tell you that legal French is a totally other thing and it's going to be a real problem to find someone who can read legal French and not speak any French. Those are problems. Here's a political problem. This isn't a transparent process at all. We're not going to know who applied. We're not going to hear from the Prime Minister about the criteria he evaluated. We're not going to really hear very much. We're going to get a list of names and we're going to know who was chosen off that name. This is transparency in name only. (laughs) And time. Okay. You talked really fast at the end there. You were looking at the timer, weren't you? I was not looking at the timer. I just happened to talk that fast. But we're already 10 seconds into the next topic, which is? The terrorism issue. Go ahead. All right. So let's start in BC, where a jury found uh, Mr. Nuttall and Ms. Um, Cordry guilty of terrorism offenses. Um, the defense then brought an application to uh, have the court throw out those convictions and uh, impose a stay of proceedings uh, for a number of reasons, abuse of process, but mainly because the police entrapped these individuals. Um, Nuttall and and Cordry were, I think, intellectually disadvantaged, unsophisticated individuals. Drug addicts. With, exactly, with neither the means nor the ability to pull off any terrorism offense. Um, Ultimately, the, the police helped them along in a plan to, uh, to, to bomb the B.C. legislature with some pressure cooker bombs. But they really had to be guided by the nose, by the police, into that plan. Before that, not all wanted to like commandeer a nuclear submarine and do these rocket attacks. And he was going to make a bomb out of cow manure. Um, so not very sophisticated. What um, the judge found was um, that 
the police um, engaged in random virtue testing, that, that they weren't really engaged in these acts until the police came along. They weren't going to engage in these acts until the police came along. The court didn't find that the police acted in bad faith, but they didn't find they acted in good faith either. They found that they were overzealous. They acted on the assumptions that there were no limits to what is an appropriate investigation for terrorism. The judge noted that various members of the RCMP and law enforcement noted huge problems with this investigation, but um, the the main sergeant um, sort of marginalized those people and proceeded anyway. Um, The court found that there's a need to curtail the actions of police um, in these sort of undercover and future undercover investigations to make sure that they don't follow the same wrongheaded path of really creating terrorists. And ultimately, I think the takeaway from this judgment is that, um, that this sort of police action is undesirable. Simply put, the court said, um, the world has enough terrorists. We don't need the police to create more terrorists out of marginalized people that don't have the capacity or motivation to do, do it themselves. The court found that there was no other remedy. They threw the, the charges out, Nuttall and, and um, Cordry walked out of court free people. Yeah. Until... Until, so before we get to the until, I just want to take a step back and um, encourage all of our listeners to read anything and everything that's been written by uh, Kent Roach and Craig Forces um, on this particular case, but also in general on our approach to the enforcement of terrorist laws. And you're not just saying that because uh, Craig Forces is now a professor colleague of yours? Oh, right. Professor Forces. The same institution. Professor Forces. Um because they have a really, really good piece in both the National Post and another one, I believe, in the Globe and Mail, um, that really dig into this point that you that the judge made that you just alluded to about kind of creating terrorists. Is that um, the the resources that are going into these kinds of investigations? Now, it's not to say these were um, radicalized converts to Islam. I mean, that I think is is understood. But whether they could take that and turn it into a successful terrorist attack is another question, and the judge was satisfied. The answer is no. They would not have been. Um, and just given that we don't have a lot of time, I mean, uh, Craig and Kent have written just really, really great anal- analysis um, on these issues. But what they've also written about is what happened next. So they're released from custody. They've been in custody, surely, since their arrest. Um, through the, throughout the trial, they're let go. They go and have lunch with their family. And the next thing they know, they're surrounded, lights and sirens, they're rearrested under a um, provision of the Bill C-51 C- uh, terrorist law amendments, which um, authorizes the Crown to seek the imposition of a peace bond against someone who um, is a perceived threat to commit a terrorist offense. So maybe I'll let you elaborate a bit on yeah, that. Yeah, so a peace bond is, is really just a court order that would impose conditions on someone who has not committed a criminal offense. Um, Terrorism peace bonds have been around since uh, the legislation following the 2001 uh, uh, terrorism attacks in the United States brought in by the former liberal government. Um, They were amended and expanded um, under Bill C-51 and sort of the threshold to get those peace bonds and what conditions the peace bonds could impose have been dramatically lowered. Um, by Bill C-51. Or more conditions, lower standards. More conditions, lower standards. And that's what not all in Cordry were arrested on, this sort of new Bill C-51 peace bond um, where you don't need to show that there's reasonable probable grounds. You don't need to show that you have reasonable suspicion. It's just someone may, isn't likely to, which was the old standard, 
which is still a low standard, but someone may commit an offense. So they're arrested on a peace bond. And sort of I think where we can link this story into um, more recent events is shortly after these individuals are arrested on a peace bond, uh, someone who was already on a peace bond um, was killed by the the RCMP in in a takedown. That's right. So the the Aaron Driver case that just happened earlier this week, the young uh, man in in southern Ontario who uh, released a video uh, in which uh, which I guess was picked up by the FBI, who saw it as a credible threat to the national security of Canada, uh, handed the information over to the RCMP. Uh, they surrounded him in a taxi cab where it turned out that he was in possession of an explosive device. Explosive device went off in the taxi cab. The explosive device was detonated. Uh, in the course of his altercation with police and shots were fired. At this point, it's unclear whether it was the explosive device that killed him or whether it was a a bullet wound that killed him. I guess that's all going to be part of ongoing um, investigation. But it does raise interesting questions because while, yes, it's true that, um, you know, this this terrorist plot, if that's what it was, it it seems that he um, intended to detonate some devices in in a crowded urban area. Um, Yes, it was thwarted. So, um, some people, therefore, would say that the police have the tools they need. Um, it was thwarted, it seems, through no detective work or ingenuity by Canadian security forces, but we were actually tipped off by the FBI. That's right. And the uh, public safety minister, Ralph Goodale, has said that um, that, in fact, is a sign of a success, that the five eyes, the sharing of information, uh, produced exactly the result it was intended to result, and that you know perhaps in another instant, it, instance it'll be Canadian intelligence um, officials sharing information with Americans to thwart an attack there. But um, it raises interesting questions, again, which are really, really well elaborated by Craig Forsyth and Kent Roach, which is why, given our limited time, I encourage people to take a look at that. Um, but... It, what, one of the things that was interesting for me as a takeaway from those pieces was this kind of, and Paul Wells has written about this too, this Goldilocks effect of, you know, is it uh, not too hot, not too cold, not just right, or is, you know, kind of situation where, um, you know, some people will look at the uh, Nuttall and Cordry case and say, this is exactly what's wrong with Bill C-51. These people were released from custody and now they've been picked up again uh, without having actually done anything that's the basis of charges. Um, and on the flip side, there will be others uh, who are going to look at the driver case and say law enforcement needs more tools. And this is why I think we really need to do whatever we can to have a nonpartisan, cool-headed um, discussion and analysis of these issues, which is exactly what I find that Craig Forsey's and Kent Roach bring to the table, because it is a completely apolitical analysis that they put forward. It's objective and it's rigorous. And it's what I think we have found that both this government and the previous government have had a really hard time doing, as well as the opposition parties. It's just, it's hard not to make politics political, right? But this, and so I'm concerned given that it would seem that our current government has done nothing at all to address the shortcomings so far of Bill C-51. Something that they promised that they would do. Something that they promised they would do. And now what they're they're proposing is that they're going to do this national public engagement strategy and they're going to consult the public on what our national security laws should be. And I just fundamentally disagree with that approach. I'm all for public consultation. I'm all for hearing from voters and, and Canadians about what it is that they want. But this is a very delicate legal balance that has to be struck. And although the government repeatedly claims that they're, they're striking that balance, I mean, you strike that on a constitutional analysis on the one hand and on a national security assessment on the other hand, not by asking people what they want. Because I think, especially in light of these cases, emotions will be high and what people want may not be what they need. Yeah, I think that there's there's a few things that strike me here. The first is, 
I want to know what the FBI knew. I want to know what the FBI passed us. I want to ensure that the FBI isn't spying on Canadians in Canada, which I don't have any faith is is you know not the case. Mm-hmm. So I want to know that. And the other thing is, you'll never, you'll never know, but but on. we should know. <laughs> yes. Um, the other thing is, um, we were told in the election that you know Bill C fifty one, we can have both safety uh, and security and freedoms at the same time. It seems like we maybe got neither here because uh, it doesn't seem like these peace bond provisions actually helped us at all, and so we've sacrificed freedoms for nothing. And lastly, the police released tons of information in this case up front. Normally, they don't release information in SIU or police death cases. In this case, they did. <laughs> wah, wah, timer. Okay, we're talking really fast. It's almost annoying to have a timer and just talk fast, but that's what we're going to do. This is a little experiment. It's okay. It's really, we're just doing it. So why don't you start us off talking about uh, the Fursillo sentencing case? So Fursillo um, has been uh, in the news for a long time, and it's been something that I don't think we've talked about very much, but uh, I think it... it it is very relevant and timely because it's an intersection of police powers, the misuse of police force, um, the death of of, um, uh, of a man who, uh, a non-white individual. A young, racialized individual with mental health issues. So, I mean, Trifecta. this is everything that's going on, um, both in the United States and in Canada. Um, and so I think it, it deserves some analysis. Um, Sammy Atim um, had mental health issues. He was on a streetcar. He was threatening, waving a knife. They stopped the streetcar. Everyone got off. He's alone on the streetcar, and he's confronted by uh, members of the Toronto Police Service, including Officer Fursillo. Officer Fursillo um, is engaging with uh, Sammy Atim. Um, not really using sort of the the de-escalation of of words, um, but yelling at him to put down the fucking knife. Um, And Frasillo is, you know, tens of feet away. Um, uh, Unless Sammy Yatim is an expert knife thrower just on leave from the carnival or something, he poses no real threat at this point because he's still on the streetcar uh, to Frasillo. Nonetheless, um, Frasillo ends up... uh, shooting two volleys of rounds at Sammy Atim. Um, and he was charged with second-degree murder. Um, the interesting sort of legal point is the Crown uh, added an additional charge of attempted murder after they got back some pathology reports. It turns I think out... we talked a little bit yeah. earlier on the podcast about the verdict, which was interesting. Yeah, so it turns out the first volley of bullets killed Sammy Atim, and he was dying, and that was unchangeable. He fell to the ground... And then Frasillo shot him again a number of times. What the jury found is that the first volley killed him. Frasillo was justified in firing that first volley. Frasillo said, then I saw him sort of sit up and reach for the knife and like make a move towards me. And that's why I shot him again. The video, the cell phone video that was shot, very important, um, doesn't show that happening at all. So the jury found um, that, that Yatim wasn't an imminent threat. To Frasillo, and under the case where someone's not an imminent threat, you can't fire bullets at him. And although that that second round of bullets didn't kill him, the intent was to kill or to cause injuries that would kill. And so that is why the jury, uh, I think, sort of split the baby and found Frasillo guilty of man of attempted murder. Yeah, and I, I have to say, when I was reading the case today, I am going to use this case in teaching 
the law of causation because it is the perfect fact pattern where he actually wasn't yet dead when the second volley If he had died when the second volley hit him, you can't attempt murder someone who's already dead, but he was, you know, seconds away from dying. So, I mean, it seems to be, you know, splitting the baby in half a bit. Um, but what happened after that is there's a mandatory minimum for, uh, for attempt murder with a firearm. Um, and Frasilla did two things. He, he attacked the constitutionality of that minimum so that he could argue that he should only get a house arrest sentence and not go to jail. And it was actually an interesting argument in the sense that the mandatory minimum applied to him because not just because it was with a firearm, but it was a restricted firearm. But it was a firearm that he was legally entitled to carry and discharge in the course of his duties. And his counsel argued that basically it was never intended to apply to a police officer. It was intended to increase the punishment for someone who not only tries to kill someone, but who does so with an illegal gun. So I think that was an interesting point. The judge rejected that and found that the law was not unconstitutional. And so that four years was going to be the minimum sentence to be imposed on Frasillo. And ultimately, he imposed six years. And I think in a, in a very well-reasoned decision, I mean, because normally what we see is police officers hardly ever go to jail because the argument often used is I'm a police officer. So one day in jail for me is like worth like a thousand days in jail for someone else because it's going to be extra hard time for me because I'm a police officer. I'll be in protective custody. And he made that argument. Oh, he did make that argument. And, and, it and the was, judge accepted it. He accepted it and then, you know, said that it's still worth six years. Um, what I really liked about this decision is finally we have a court not excusing officer behavior, um, not saying that, you know, we have to cut officers to break because they're stressful circumstances, because they have a dangerous job. We have a court finally and strongly saying that because you're a police officer, you are held to a higher standard. And, you know, what might be excusable for a member of the public shouldn't be excusable for a police officer. We expect that when we give police officers great power, they'll exercise that power with the utmost responsibility. And um, this was a, a criminal act. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is exactly that, is that the judge actually found that uh, Frasillo's moral blameworthiness was high that he disregarded his training, that he um, improperly discharged his firearm. went and, and the judge doesn't find that he lied, but he completely rejects the officer's claim, not only that he perceived, um, not only that, that um, Sammy Yatim was attempting to sit up, but that, in fact, he wasn't even mistaken. That The judge rejected that the officer perceived that, even though that was his evidence. Yeah, that's, that's saying that he lied. Basically. It's like not only did you you know not see that, but you <laughs> didn't, didn't you didn't actually even believe that to be the case. That's right. What's what's interesting when you read this, and again, this is why I think this case will be a very interesting teachable, is, is what some of the arguments that the defense made, which really are perverse arguments. Like for example, um, the moral blameworthiness is low, and in fact, you know, it can happen in an attempt murder where the victim isn't even hurt. Right, like you can shoot at someone and miss, and you can still be guilty of attempted murder. Well, they said they said it's mitigating because the first yeah. volley of bullets severed his spinal cord and paralyzed him. The second volley of bullets just hit hit him in the groin um, and in the lower body area, so he wouldn't have felt that because of the first volley, and because he didn't feel it, it's not. It's not, it's not so bad. The harm isn't serious. And the judge, I mean, it's an asinine argument. And the judge quite right, rightly pointed out that, no, you go to jail for a long time, longer than this officer does probably, if you try to kill somebody and you miss them, and the bullet doesn't even hit them at all. So, I mean, some of these really fanciful arguments by the defense were, were outright rejected. Those must be tough arguments to make because that is a pretty 
rip to say like it didn't even hurt him because the earlier shot severed his spinal cord. Do you know like, a, a smarter thing to do is not make stupid arguments. Yes, yeah, that is that's a fact. So um, the judge goes through all that. He acknowledges the mitigating factors that this is a person who was otherwise well respected in his community. That the time will be hard for him because it will be served in protective custody. And that says something. Giving him six years is probably more like the equivalent of giving him closer to 10 years. Um, if you factor in, you know, the, the fact that he won't have access to the same degree of socialization or programming or other things and that, um, he'll be in protective custody. So, um, I think there are many people who will think that six years is low. I think, um, you know, I would encourage people to take a look at the decision. It's not that long. It's about 24 pages. Um, and it, uh, it, it's really interesting because on the deterrence point, that's another one where I think, you know, you're lauding the judge for sort of flipping the analysis on its head when it's a police officer. And I think he did that on deterrence too. The defense tried to argue that, um, just the fact of the prosecution is going to be a deterrence to other police officers. And the judge said, no, I think other officers need to see not only are you going to be prosecuted, but you're going to be sentenced in accordance with the degree of your moral blameworthiness and it's high. So I think that's a very welcome development. And then Frisella has argued, like, I'm going to lose my job. And I mean, I think the tone of the judgment is, yeah, you should lose your job. Because if you're a police officer and you're being reckless with your gun and when you're using it, maybe you shouldn't have a gun and you shouldn't be a police officer. And he acknowledged that, again, as a factor, i.e., your sentence would have been longer, but for the fact that you will lose your job. So he did factor it in. In terms of specific deterrence, that is deterring the offender himself, I think the judge was rightly of the view that um, this officer you know, will be properly deterred by the sentence and there's not some additional punishment that's necessary to specifically deter him. But um, I, I, I really think the judge, and this is difficult, I, I don't, do you know whether it's been appealed? It uh, it has an uh, appeal has been filed. Okay, Frisello is pending. currently on bail pending. Um, the legal argument on the constitutionality and, and an inevitable appeal appeal of the verdict itself and the sentence. So this is a case that's going to go to the Ontario Court of Appeal. It's going to be a, a long time before there's finality on this. Um, there are complex issues here, there and are. there are important issues. Um, and you know, if history is uh, any guide, um, convictions will be overturned, and Frisillo will uh, return mm-hmm. to the force with back pay. I actually, the one area where I wonder whether the Court of Appeal might not find something to work with is in the judge's uh, rejection of some of the reasonable hypotheticals that were put forth as examples of how um, the law could be unconstitutional in terms of the the constitutional finding. Um, some of that analysis I wasn't totally sold uh, on, um, so it'll be interesting to see. Some of that analysis is also pretty fanciful, using examples of like a soldier in in a active combat and you know an operational theater firing at somebody. Some of the arguments in relation to domestic abuse and, and battered women. He ain't syndrome. no battered woman. No, but he doesn't have to be. The law can be unconstitutional That's... if it would apply to uh, a person in respect of whom it would result in a grossly disproportionate sentence. So anyway, uh, take a look at that. Oh, you're done. Done. Um, but moving into to, um, our last topic. Uh, related. I think it's very related. Um, so I'll, it's a local topic um, about uh, a Somali male um, um, Abdiram and Abdi in Ottawa, who was dead after an interaction with the police. And I think why the Forsillo case and the Samiat team killing is sort of a good segue into this case is the only reason Forsillo uh, was convicted, the only reason why he, he was sentenced is because there was a video of what happened. 
Without a video, police officers enjoy an air of credibility. The thin blue line isn't imaginary. It's quite real. It's hard to convict police officers. And the one thing that I know as a defense counsel, police officers lie. They lie just as often as you and me. They lie because you you don't? Not on the stand. Oh, (laughs) I've never lied under oath. That was a good qualification. Police officers do. Sometimes they do it for reasons they think are just. Sometimes they do it because they're bad officers. Sometimes they do it because they're dirty cops. There was a recent Court of Appeal decision here where the Court of Appeal found that Ottawa police officers had lied about pulling their guns. So police officers lie. And really the only way that um, that we can hold police officers account is uh, by cell phone video. And to be fair, other people lie too. So it also protects the police. I mean, they're, you know, that's not in their exclusive domain to lie. You only have to look at the Fursillo case, like you said. I mean, um, I think... Uh, Fursillo's evidence came out quite credibly and so it's very clear that the judge relied very heavily on the video in that case and I mean yes other people do lie and some people lie about what police do to them but when the police lie about what you did when you're sort of a young racialized man and the police lie or plant evidence you go to jail and your life is ruined Mm -hmm. when you lie and you say that officer you know assaulted me that officer's life is inconvenienced very rarely does the officer suffer any you know lasting consequences because of that so there is a a disbalance here but back to the abdi case Um, police were called to a local coffee shop um, because there were reports of a, a somali male attempting to grope a woman They attended the coffee shop. The mail was gone. Patrons pointed them out uh, to the Somali male who was leaving. Uh, They gave chase 250 meters later on the doorsteps to his apartment building. Uh, The police uh, took uh, Mr. Abdi to the ground. Um, They uh, were on top of him. And then the public uh, witnesses report that they then beat him with batons, sprayed him with pepper spray. Uh, and uh, he was unresponsive on the ground. Turns out he was dying on the ground in handcuffs. Uh, the police uh, hesitated to uh, administer CPR. And it seems that they discouraged bystanders from calling uh, paramedics. That's what the bystanders say. Um, and uh, ultimately, paramedics didn't attend for, for 10 minutes as he lay uh, dying on the concrete. He was unarmed. He had mental health issues. Um, and... Police officers in this case went around to members of the public and tried to confiscate their cell phones and their cameras. Sounds like consciousness of guilt to me. Yeah, because this was all being recorded. And of course, unlike the terrorism case, um, where the police are releasing all types of information about this man that died at the hands of the RCMP, uh, his videos, the information that the FBI got, um, and details of the case. Photos of the taxi cab with the explosion police in this case say that because the matter is being investigated by the special investigations unit we can't really comment so i call bullshit on that ottawa police i think it's just a coincidence that people are basically happy that aaron driver is dead and people are upset that abdurrahman abdi is dead i mean seriously this is every time they say that i mean the chief of police of ottawa basically refusing to say anything about this case is is very problematic. I mean, yes, he's made some public statements, but he basically refuses to go anywhere near what actually happened. And uh, if you expect the police, chief, chief Bordalo or our mayor Jim Watson in Ottawa here to make any statements about anything controversial, other than you know the, the summer barbecue circuit, whether they prefer you know ribs or chicken, uh, I think you're you're wishing for a lot. But you know the the confiscation of cell phone videos, I think shows, or the attempted confiscation of cell phone videos, shows how important 
uh, it is that we record the police not for the police's protection, but for the public's protection. And the cell phone videos in this case show uh, officers on top of Abdi and and him lying, dying, uh, without them doing anything in the street. And I think what both of these cases show, the Yatim case and this one, is how just grossly under-equipped police are to deal with people with mental health issues. I mean, there's an intersection here between the fact that these were uh, racialized people as well as individuals with mental health issues, but I think... Uh, it's clear in the Fursillo case that virtually no effort was made to de-escalate. If anything... He said fucking drop the knife. Isn't that enough? <laughs> I was going to say, if anything, the officer's conduct served to escalate the situation. And I think another benefit to police wearing cameras is that we'll actually provide educational opportunities. It will allow the police to start to gather some credible um, data on how these interactions go down, not just sort of anecdotal and based on recollection and, and, and peer-to-peer discussion, but actually to start really taking, because these are difficult situations. I mean, I don't think anybody disagrees that figuring out how to address the issue of um, potentially violent individuals who are psychotic or who are otherwise in some kind of um, emotional distress, there's not an easy solution. I'm quite sure that if there was, it would have already been implemented because uh, I think the police recognize and understand how vulnerable they are uh, when they have interactions with these people. Vulnerable in the sense of actually um, being exposed to the potential for an excessive use of force. And they, they just they don't have the tools and they need the tools. I think there's a few sort of bright line rules that, uh, that we should have. And that is when the police are interacting with someone who's not armed, that person should never die. Yeah, um, reasonable. The second is when um, the Court of Appeal says that the Ottawa police, which is representative of really all police forces across Canada, um, in a recent case, they said that the police violated and accused charter rights and, and intentionally and gratuitously inflicted pain on this individual when they were arresting him. The uh, our chief of police said, well, we don't need to educate our officers. Uh, or have continuing education about their rights or their responsibilities and the limits of their power. In the wake of the Abdi case, um, the uh, the president of the police association was was on the local news, and when talking about you know racialized people suffering at the hands of the police, um, the the president Matt Scoff called uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and concerns you know mere rhetoric. So when you have the chief oh, of police, police, yeah. When you have the chief of the police dismissing the problem, when you have the uh, president of the police association calling these legitimate concerns mere rhetoric, and when you have studies that show that police use less force and use force less often when they're on camera, um, and those studies exist, um, I think those facts all combine to show that you have a problem with police, you have a problem with police management, and you have a problem with police culture. And we need to turn the surveillance state on the police for our own protection. And incidentally, it will protect them as well and save justice costs. But this is about policing the police and accountability. Yeah, and actually, Matt Spock also said that he doesn't know if uh, Abdi Ramon Abdi had mental health issues, but that if he had, it wouldn't have changed the way that the situation was dealt with. You know, that to me was very disturbing because it's a huge case of prejudging the situation. If you don't have the information, why are you out there publicly saying it's irrelevant, it wouldn't have changed things? You know, this where at the same time the chief of police is refusing to say anything at all. Um, so I think there's there's two really big policing challenges that are kind of coming together in both the, the Yatim case and the Abdi case. And um, I, I do think that the, the Liberal government has indicated that 
they want to look at this issue. I mean, it's, it's in their budget to deal with mental health in general. But um, this is going to really come to a head. And unfortunately, I think because of the, the racial element, it's only serving to inflame a very contentious, rightfully, um, issue, which um, we need to see some indication that our leaders, including the chief of police, are serious about addressing. Yeah, and this is, I mean, it's easy to dismiss sort of these issues as local issues. Sammy Yatim was a Toronto police issue. Things that happen in Baltimore or Chicago or or in the States or those local issues. This Abdi case is an Ottawa issue. But really, it's happening everywhere. This same culture is pervasive in every police force and every police association. I would wager that, you know, if we had video of a police officer, you know, executing someone in the middle of the street, the police association would stick up for that officer in Ottawa, in Toronto and anywhere else. And there comes a time when you have to sort of take principled positions, even with respect to your own organization or your own membership. And that's not happening. No, but to be fair, I mean, you're a defense lawyer. I think you would agree that I don't know that it's inappropriate for the police association to stick up for its people in the very early stages of an unfolding investigation. I mean, I think, you know, police officers are entitled to due process too. I think the cameras will help them get that. Um, and it will also they make it very clear that they're that they're subject to due process. We've we've heard, you know, what about these officers' charter rights and the, their freedoms and their presumption of innocence? Um, according to most police associations, those presumptions only apply to officers right. and no one else. Yeah, we did it. We talked about all our topics very fast. Actually, I recommend to our listeners that you simply play the podcast and put it on half speed. Because... <laughs> 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 I know that I have, I'm able to talk very fast, and I have no doubt that I was probably difficult to understand, so sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I think we could have talked about any one of those topics as, a whole, as a whole episode. But you know, when um, when you don't have the mad podcast money coming in, and you've got other things to do, you can't really do that. you got to be canoe tripping. I mean, it's the summer, man. Summer living. Summer living. So we will pick back up on the Brendan Dassey case once we actually know something about it, which we basically don't right now. And, uh, you know, with settling back into the routines of fall and everything, hopefully we'll be able to catch these issues more as they come. Yeah, so I hope we can talk about Brennan Dassey. Um, the Senate of Canada just released a report about delays in the justice system, which is very timely, and the initial language of it caused me some uh, some concerns. So I'd like to podcast a little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's other fun stuff we could do. Yeah, yeah, we've got lots of stuff, good stuff on the horizon. So let's just leave it there. Let's order some sushi and watch TV. Yeah, what should we watch? Hard to say. Maybe a little more West Wing. West Wing or Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more uh, at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman and you can follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening. Can't prove it, oh, oh, you got nothing legit, oh.